We're going to be talking about intimidation in our study out of Acts chapter 4 today. And we've entitled the message, Unintimidated. Sometimes uh, we find ourselves in circumstances in life that can be intimidating, right? Uh, for example, uh, those of us that were uh, at R2R yesterday and uh, decided to run the 5K, uh, it's a little intimidating. I don't know about you, but I don't like running. But I ran the 5K. And the whole time I was running, I'm thinking, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. <clears throat> go ahead and quit, go ahead and quit, go ahead and quit. But something in me said, you're not a quitter. Especially when little girls are passing me. <laughs> Get real. That's real motivating, you know. So, uh, now, you know, endurance sports, uh, I tip my hat. I mean, we had some of you that ran a 10K. Who in their right mind, what possesses a human being to run 6.2 miles without stopping? And we know in, in, our, in our 10K, we had a 45-year-old guy that came in first, and then his wife came in first for the females. I mean, how can somebody that old, how can their joints hold up? I, I tip my hat, I'm amazed. I mean, some of you run marathons, and I'm like, wow, that's, it really is incredible. And I simply say, better you than me. But uh, <laughs> I've never been into running. But I, I, but I really, I, give my, I, I tip my hat to those of you that are involved in endurance sports because it, 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 it acquires, requires excuse me, incredible discipline and commitment. Uh, there's a, a deacon couple in our church that are going to be running the Spartan race. Ever heard of the Spartan race? I never heard of the Spartan race, so I looked it up. Uh, the Reebok Spartan race. They have a waiver. Now, you had to sign a waiver to be in the race yesterday, but it's like a no big deal waiver. The Spartan race, right? Here's the waiver you have to sign, okay? Uh, the risk of injury and or death from the activities involved in the Spartan race and the event in, is significant, including, but not limited to, the following. Drowning, near drowning, sprains, strains, fractures, heat and cold injuries, overuse syndrome, injuries involving vehicles. Animal bites or stings, contact with poisonous plants, accidents involving, but not limited to, paddling, climbing, biking, hiking, skiing, snowshoeing, travel by boat, truck, car, or other conveniences. Heart attack and the potential of permanent paralysis and or death while particular rules and equipment and personal discipline may reduce this risk, the risk of death or serious injury does exist. I mean, after reading that, who's going to sign and say, I'm up for this? But there will be hundreds and hundreds of people that are up for that. And I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering if we should have people who are going to join the church of Jesus Christ, the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ, not the backslidden apostate church, not the Christ-denying, Ten Commandments-denying, Scripture-denying, politically correct apostate church, but the true New Testament remnant church of Jesus Christ. I'm just wondering, before people join that church, the called out ones, the ecclesia, the representatives of Christ in a fallen world, I'm just wondering if maybe we should have people sign a waiver that serving Jesus may be hazardous to one's health. I'm wondering, I'm wondering, before somebody surrenders their life to Jesus and, and we invite them to come and be a disciple of Christ and follow Jesus, that there should be a waiver form that we have people sign that says, once you commit your life to Jesus, there is no turning back. Once you commit your life to Jesus, you're all in. Once you commit your life to Jesus, it may, it just may be hazardous to one's health and well-being. You see, in our text that we're going to look at today, we're going to see that the world does not accept nor does it embrace 
those who represent Christ. It never has. Just two weeks after the day of Pentecost, just two weeks after Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit fell and 120 were filled with the Holy Spirit, and the church, the New Testament church, officially started, just two weeks after that, Peter and John find themselves in a heap of trouble. Peter and John are arrested. Why? For preaching Jesus. Why? Because the man that was lame was healed. Why? Because it disrupted the status quo. That's why. And now they're being threatened and intimidated. And yet, Peter and John didn't back down. Peter and John were unintimidated. We're going to talk about that today. You see, sometimes in life, whenever you and I are moving forward in the direction that God's called us, where our life is concerned, reaching, you know, striving to reach our goals, striving to fulfill the dream of God in our heart, being the Jesus person he's called us to be, letting our light shine, there are going to be some intimidating circumstances and situations you're going to have to confront. I mean, I mean, for example, I mean, something as simple as moving to a new city can be very intimidating. Some of you have just moved to Lubbock. Welcome, by the way. But it can be very intimidating. Starting a new job can be very intimidating. Starting a new marriage can be very intimidating. Starting a new school can be very intimidating. There are many things in life that could be potentially very intimidating. And because of that, many people back down. Hey, single guys, uh, asking a girl out can be intimidating. Because she potentially could say, get lost, freak, or whatever, you know. Uh, I'm not interested. But sometimes you have to go through a few no's before you find a yes. It's okay. All right, it's okay. So that can be intimidating. Uh, there are so many things about life that can be intimidating. But as a Christ follower, we have to, like David in the Old Testament, young teenager, on, on a mission, on an assignment from his dad to go deliver bread and cheese to his brothers on the battle line. He gets there thinking that there's going to be a battle going on, but there's not. There's this ugly giant of a man by the name of Goliath who's taunting and mocking and ridiculing uh, the, the people of God and the army of Israel. And David says, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? Why isn't anybody taking him out? And everybody was intimidated by this giant. Everybody was afraid of this giant. David says, I'll take him out. So young David, a teenager, stepped up and was unintimidated, faced the giant, and he killed the giant. How many of sometimes in life we're going to have to face some giants? We all have giants, right? You're facing some giants in your own life right now. And how many know that in, not in our own strength, not in our own power, not in our own ability, sometimes we have to face the giant if we're going to slay the giant, if we're going to defeat the giant. And if we're going to do that, how many know you can't be intimidated? Look to your neighbor and say, you can't be intimidated. So Peter and John have just been arrested for preaching Jesus. All right? They spent in jail all night. We're going to look at that here in just a moment. Uh, later on in life, many years later, Paul, Peter was writing his epistles. He, had, he wrote First and Second Peter, First and Second uh, Epistles of Peter. In the first epistle he wrote, he remembers this moment and he speaks about it. In First Peter three fourteen, he says this: "But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed." Look to your neighbor and say, "You are blessed." Come on, you are blessed. And I want you to read this last part out loud with me. Do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. You see, those who are enemies of the cross of Christ for really 2,000 years have employed ridicule, rejection, rage, and even rampage to intimidate, silence, and stop Christians. I love Leonard Ravenhill. He was a, he's a great, great author on books of revival. If you want to have some challenging spiritual reading in your life, pick up a Leonard Ravenhill book. He said this, a man who is intimate with God is not intimidated by man. I love that quote. 
A man or a woman who is intimate with God will not be intimidated by man. So two weeks after Pentecost, a critical moment occurs in the history of the church. Persecution commences. Persecution officially begins just two weeks after Pentecost with this episode we're going to read here in Acts chapter 4. It started then and it hasn't ended since then. For the last 2,000 years, Christians have been persecuted. Why? Why have Christians and why are Christians being persecuted? Well, for several reasons. First of all, Christians challenge the status quo. Christians rock the boat. Uh, The Bible compares you to salt. Jesus said you're the salt of the earth. And how many of you know that uh, if you put a little bit of salt on an open wound, it stings? And by nature of who you are, representing Christ in a fallen world, and there are spiritually open wounds that sometimes the salt is applied and it stings, and people don't like that. Jesus said you're the light of the world. And what does light do? Light exposes what's in the darkness. Now, many of you know this. Some of you don't. You're new to the church. But, but uh, my grandfather owned a bar. My dad owned a bar. I've, I grew up in a bar. And even as a Christ follower, after I was radically saved, I would help my dad out there in Albuquerque, uh, 9800 Blanc of Montgomery and Eubank. I would go to Papa Toadies, right? And I would shut the bar down. And, and uh, many of you were raised in a Christian home, so thank God you're going to, like, listen to me. And you're like, what in the world? I didn't know that went on. So, but but for, those, for the sake of those who don't know, I'm going to tell you. So a bar has to shut down at 2 a.m., that used to be the law. I don't know if that's still the law. 2 a.m. So 1.30, you give last call. So I'd show up at 1.30. I make sure that the bartender said, last call, last call, as if you haven't had enough already. Okay. Uh, last call before you jump in your cars and drive while under the influence. Uh, last call, you know, while you go home and make a mess of your life. But anyway, no, I'm not judging. I'm just saying. I've been there. I've been there. Last call. I need to do a sermon series called Last Call. Anyway. Um, and then, and then, about 10 minutes before 2, you know what we would do? We would turn on the lights. And as soon as you turn on the lights, like, everybody like scatters out there. Like, light, ah, vampires, ah, you know, like, we don't like the light. Why? Because we like sinning in the dark. I mean, think about it. Most of the times that you've ever sinned or sinned, it's usually in the dark or in, it's lightly dimmed, right? You know what I'm talking about? And that's why the Bible says we are no longer children of the night, but we are children of the light. And our deeds are exposed before God. Amen? <laughs> children of the light. Look to your neighbor and say, I'm a child of the light, not the night. Come on. Light, not night. So you represent light. So, and we also represent the holy commands of a holy God. You see, we don't always keep the holy commands of a holy God because we're fallen human beings and at times we fall short. We all do. Even as a Christ follower, there are times that we can fall short. His grace is sufficient though. But we represent the holy commands of a holy God. How many know that our God is holy? And how many know that he has holy commands? How many know that Jesus has the teachings of Christ, that as a Christ follower, we have to follow the teachings of Jesus? And sometimes the commandments of God aren't too convenient. Sometimes the teachings of Jesus are not always convenient. But we are required by God to obey his commandments. And who gave us the Ten Commandments? Let's start right there. Who gave us the Ten Commandments? God gave us the Ten Commandments. God wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger, right? So you didn't write the Ten Commandments. I didn't write the Ten Commandments. You should be thankful that I didn't write the Ten Commandments. Because if I would have written the Ten Commandments, one of the Ten Commandments would be, would be this. Thou shall not drive slow in the fast lane. <laughs> That's just wrong. I'm coming back from Dallas the other day, and like, there are people in, and they have signs, uh, the left lane, passing lane. And there are people driving the speed limit in the fast lane. 
I mean, there's something wrong if you're driving the speed limit in the fast lane, move over. For those of us that have some place to be in life. Just kidding, just kidding. So, you know, I'd have to pass the people in the passing lane in the right lane. And inevitably, you know, you have to give them that look like, are you kidding me? I love you, I pray for you, but really? Like, like I own the road. Okay, but just move over and own that side of the road, right? Let the, anyway, thou shalt. If I wrote the Ten Commandments, I would have a commandment that says, thou shalt not pay at the grocery store with a check. Thou shalt not register it in your register while someone is waiting behind thee, right? So the point is, we didn't write the commandments. God wrote the commandments, but he expects us to keep them. He expects us to honor them. He expects us to obey them, and that disrupts a world who's in the business of breaking the Ten Commandments. How many know most of Hollywood is about breaking the Ten Commandments? How many know most of the stuff that happens in Las Vegas is about breaking the Ten Commandments? How many know most of what's on television is about breaking the Ten Commandments? Now, don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good. Amen? But really, persecution of Christians is on the rise. This is what's happened just this year in the news. It's in the notes if you want to download them. Uh, off of our app or the internet. In April of this year, ISIS video showed the beheadings of Ethiopian Christians. In April, Al-Shabaab militants, Muslim militants, singled out Christians in a Kenyan university and slaughtered 150 Christians, separating the Muslim students from the Christian students and slaughtered 150. Uh, in March, there were suicide bombers that, that uh, struck in Pakistan in a Christian community, killing 14, injuring scores of others. In February, uh, Egyptian uh, Coptic Christians were killed uh, on a Libyan beach. Uh, in February of the same of this same year, ISIS seized more than 250 Assyrian Christians uh, and has, has begun systematically slaughter them. They've just finished uh, kidnapping 40,000 Yazidis and mistreating and abusing them uh, and selling the women into sex slavery. This is happening, and these people are being targeted because they're Christians. So I wonder if. Maybe signing a waiver of letting people know what it means if you're going to be a Christ follower. But listen, whatever you may lose in this life cannot be compared to what you will gain in the next life. I never thought I would see this day. I never thought I would see this day that we're living in today. Not only what's happening in, around the world, but what's beginning to happen here in the United States of America. An Oregon judge, this was in the news just this, a few days ago, an Oregon judge has awarded a lesbian couple uh, $135,000 for emotional damages in a lawsuit against Aaron and Melissa Klein of Sweet Cakes Bakery. They are a Christian couple who declined to provide a wedding cake to the same-sex couple in 2013. That's their prerogative. If it's against their religious convictions uh, that they don't believe in same-sex marriages, why should they be forced by the government to make a cake? It would be like you walking into a Muslim bakery and asking a Muslim baker to make you a cake with the picture of Muhammad on that. That would be offensive to Muslims. You would not do that. I would not do that. That would be like you wanting to have somebody cater a, a, a reception and going to a Jewish deli, a kosher Jewish deli, and asking that Jewish kosher deli to uh, cater your reception and that you want them to serve pork. They're not going to serve pork. 
there are a hundred other delis that can serve pork. If you want pork at your reception, that's your business. Go get pork at your reception, but don't ask a Jewish kosher deli to provide it. And don't expect the government to make them to provide it. And yet, we find that happening amongst Christian businesses in America today, violating their religious expression and their religious convictions by mandate. Don't believe me? Look at Hobby Lobby and how they are being required to violate their own personal religious convictions at the behest of the federal government. Such incredible things are happening in this day and hour. Governor Mike, former Governor Mike Huckabee, speaking at the major Hispanic evangelical gathering in Texas just a few days ago, said this, and I'm quoting directly. We are living in perilous times where people who are Christians are on the brink of being criminalized for their convictions. He went on to say, you are told that if you continue to hold to your Christian witness and belief that you ought to be put out of business and that you are going to be fined, you are going to be punished. These are serious times in which we find ourselves living. We cannot stick our head in the sand. We cannot come to church and pretend that this is not happening. We must have a response, a biblical response, a godly response, a spirit-led response. But we must respond because our very existence and our very freedoms upon which this nation was founded on. Oh, by the way, how did America get started? There were Christians in Europe that were being persecuted for their faith, and they fled to the new world to establish a new country in which there would be religious freedom where Christians could pray, study their Bibles, love God, and live for God, and not be threatened or intimidated by a, a monarchy or by a government. And how times have changed in just 230 plus years later. Where did this all start? Acts chapter 4, verse 1. Look at what it says. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus, there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it. Oh, I love that. Many did not believe but many did believe. There are many who hear the message today, and although God wants them all to believe, because he's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance, there are many who refuse to believe. But don't focus on those who refuse to believe. Focus on those who hear the message and choose to believe the message and accept Christ as Lord and Savior, and the kingdom of God is growing. And here's what happened in the time of Peter and John. Uh, many heard their message and believed it. So the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. <clears throat> so how do you know that the early church was a mega church? Uh, 3,000 were saved on Pentecost. Two weeks later, 5,000 were saved because of this miracle. Once again, Peter preached. 3,000 saved at Pentecost. Peter preached again. 5,000 men, not including women and children. There could be well over 15 to 20,000 new Christians that had surrendered their life to Christ just two weeks after Pentecost, just, just 60, 70 days after the first Easter. How many know that all of a sudden, what the religious leaders thought that they had accomplished in killing Jesus and thinking that he would stay dead and putting him in a tomb and sealing the tomb and posting guards at that 
tomb. On the third day, Jesus changed the plans of this world. Jesus changed the plans of the kingdom of darkness. Jesus changed the plans of the religious leaders. And he rose victoriously from the dead. He appeared to over 500 of his disciples. And now it's not just one Jesus that they're trying to track. Who is he? Where is he? What town? What city? What village? Now there are over 500 believers representing Jesus, telling everybody else about Jesus that he is alive and he could change your life. And now miracles are happening through his followers. And they're like, guys, we got ourselves a serious problem. And yes, you do. So the religious mafia of Peter's day came together. And it says in verse 5, the next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest, all the who's who, the most powerful religious people in the known world at that time were all gathered together. The very same people, just a couple of months prior, had gathered together against Christ. Now they're gathering together against Peter and John. And they said in verse 7, they brought in the two disciples and demanded, we're talking about intimidation, and demanded, by what power or in whose name have you done this? Now, Luke gives detail as to who was gathered here because he wants us to really get into the story and see the severity of this. In the time of Christ, in the time of the apostles, if you were called before the religious Sanhedrin, the, the Supreme Court, the religious Supreme Court of that day, you were placed in the center of a room and you were surrounded by the most aggressive and intimidating and religiously powerful. They weren't politically powerful. Well, in, a, in an indirect way, they were. There was the power of Rome and then there was the power of the, the Jewish religious leaders. You would be placed in the center and everyone would circle around you and then they would begin to hurl accusations and, 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 and assault you verbally and interrogate you verbally. And you're standing there in the middle. It is a very intimidating uh, circumstance for anybody to be in, especially Peter, who just a couple of months, uh, just a couple of months earlier, was intimidated and denied Jesus on three separate occasions, in front of a 12-year-old girl, mind you. But something's changed. Peter is not the guy that he used to be. So look at what it says. Now get this in your mind's eye. The most powerfully religious people in the world at that time assembled themselves together. The captain of the temple guard, who was the one, by the way, that arrested Jesus in the garden with his soldiers. They were armed uh, soldiers that guarded the temple. And, and then the high priests and, and all these all the, San, the, the Sanhedrin, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they're all the same people gathered around Peter. They represent the power brokers of that day. And who was Peter? Peter really was a nobody, right? Peter was a former fisherman. Peter was just a fisherman, a blue-collar worker. And one day, you know, Jesus walked up to him and said, follow me and I'll, I'll make you fishers of men. I mean, I mean, if you put it in today's lingo, Peter worked on the oil fields in Midland, Texas. And one day Jesus walked by and said, follow me and I'll make you a driller of men. Amen. <laughs> and so Peter, right, this, this rough and tough fisherman is now standing before the religious order of his day and having to answer a question. He has no authority from man. He has no power from man. He has no influence from man. But what does he have? <laughs> Look at verse 8. Read this verse out loud with me. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. Stop there. 
Say that again. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit. What sets you apart? What makes you different from every, anybody else and everybody else in the world? You may not have the rank. You may not have the titles. You may not have the power. You may not have the influence. But if you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need to stand and be the person God's called you to be. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead on the third day. The Bible says the same, not a different, the same Holy Spirit lives and dwells inside of you, quickening your body and making you alive. Aren't you glad that the Father has given you and I the same Holy Spirit that was upon Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that's upon you and me? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people. Now, at this moment, Peter is thinking about what Jesus said just prior to his death. What was Peter thinking about? Go to Matthew chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. There was an episode in the life of Jesus when he was mentoring his, his disciples as they became apostles. He said this to them. When you are arrested, <laughs> stop there. I mean, you know, if I was Peter that day when Jesus said this, and he said, uh, guys, listen to me. Yeah, yeah, what's up, Lord? Hey, when you're arrested, what? What's this when stuff? How about like if you are arrested? I mean, I don't know about you, but being arrested isn't fun. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you have ever been arrested? <laughs> I was. I've been arrested. I, I had a checkered pass when I was a um, anyway, teenager. But anyway, uh, it's not fun being arrested. It's fun or arresting. <laughs> I've arrested people before. Yeah, I was, uh, I was a, a part-time uh, sheriff's deputy. I've had an interesting life. But anyway, uh, I realize it's funner arresting people than being arrested. But anyway, so <laughs> Jesus said, when you are arrested, don't worry. Now, if I were Peter, I'd be like, that's easy for you to say, Jesus. I mean, you can like appear and disappear like that. I mean, you're God, right? Don't worry about how to respond or what to say. God will give you... Cool. Is it like time to end already? It's close. Wow. All right. So I've thrown out the, fish, I've thrown out the fishing line with the bait. Now the music's starting, which means we're about to reel you in. And I'm only halfway done. Wow. Okay. Listen, listen hard. Listen fast. When you're arrested, don't, thanks. When you're arrested, don't worry about how to respond, what to say. God will give you the right words at the right time. You know, whenever you find yourself in an intimidating situation, it could be in a boardroom. It could be on a showroom floor. It could be on a sales floor. It could be in a police uh, vehicle. It could be in a court. It could be in your bedroom with your wife when she asks you to answer something and you're like, a man, and you know that sometimes what you think and what you say are two different things, and you're like, I do not want to sleep on the couch tonight. So God will give you the right words at the right time, right? Verse 20, for it's not you who will be speaking. It will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. Wow, the spirit of your father speaking through you. So that's what's happening here. Now go back to Acts 4, verse 9. And we are being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man. In other words... He's being respectful, but he's saying, this guy sat outside your church for the last 40 years and you didn't lift a finger to help him. But because Jesus, the one you murdered, the one you killed is alive, 
It's faith in his name and power through his name that this man has been healed. And you're judging us for doing a good deed? Are you kidding me? He goes on to say, do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, the man you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. Come on, give it up for Peter. Yeah, Peter, unintimidated. Verse 11, for Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures. Now, he's a Jew speaking to Jews, and he's about to quote a very important verse in the Bible that all of them, know, all of them had memorized. And Peter's going to properly assign this prophecy to Jesus. They didn't believe that it spoke of Jesus, but Peter is, is, is about to assign it to Messiah. He's quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22. So important is this verse. It's quoted three other times in the Bible, here in Acts 4, Ephesians 2.20, and then once again in 1 Peter 2.7. What's that verse? Here it is. The stone that you builders rejected now become the cornerstone. The stone which you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Uh, by the way, did you know that Jesus was Native American? Because he's called the chief cornerstone. Okay, bad joke, corny joke, I know, okay. <laughs> Just want to make sure you're still awake, still alert. So, what, what does this prophecy, what does this messianic prophecy mean? It means this. When David's heir and David's son, King Solomon, was instructed by God to build the temple, the first temple, the Jewish temple of the place of worship, they were not allowed to cut or hammer the stones near the temple site because it was holy. So they would quarry the stones far from the temple site, and then once the stones were perfectly cut, they would bring them to the temple site, and all the stones perfectly fit together. This is such a powerful spiritual metaphor that Peter uses it in his epistle. He says that we are living stones uh, joined, joined and, and fitted together perfectly for building up of a spiritual habitation for the Lord. Uh, it's, just, it's, it's a beautiful metaphor. So all these stones were brought. There was one stone, one stone that was brought, and they didn't recognize it. They didn't, they didn't see the value of this stone. It didn't look like it fit in for the temple. So they set this stone aside, and as, as history tells us, as legend tells us, they set this stone aside, and then what happened was they completely rejected it. They allowed it to roll down to the Kidron Valley. And when they finished building the temple, they realized that there was a stone that was missing, the most important stone, the cornerstone. <laughs> and the stone which the builders had initially rejected, they had to go back down to the Kidron Valley and they had to re-insert uh, that stone because the cornerstone is the most important stone in, a spirit, in, a, in an edifice. Because without that stone, that building will not last. Did you know that Jesus is the chief cornerstone of your life, of my life, of your marriage, my marriage, of your family, of my family, of this city, of this nation, of this world? If we remove Jesus as the chief cornerstone and we throw it out and we reject it, everything like a house of cards is going to begin to tumble down. Come on, we need to reclaim the cornerstone of our life and of our nation. But here's what you need to know. Jesus knows about rejection. The stone which the builders rejected. You know what breaks my heart as a pastor is many of you, many of you experienced, have experienced rejection in your life. Many of us, I include myself, at different intervals, different periods of times in our life, we have faced rejection. I wish it wasn't so. I wish we lived in a perfect world. I wish that you 
never had to experience rejection. But sometimes at a very early age, a spirit of rejection can enter into your life. Maybe you're rejected, God forbid, by a mother or by a father or by both your parents. God forbid that that would happen, but it does. Maybe you were rejected by a spouse that walked out on you that said, you're not good enough, basically, or you're no good, or I don't love you anymore, or I want somebody else or something else. And what happens is the spirit of rejection can come into a person's life, and it becomes a stronghold in your life. And unless it's addressed and you allow God to bring healing and restoration in your life, it could become a permanent part of your life, and it could interfere with what God wants to do with your future. We can't change the past. It'd be great if we can get into some time machine and go back and undo, and uh, by God's grace, things are, that were done to us or, or committed against us could be undone, but they can't. But you know what? They don't have to be a part of your present, and they don't have to be a part of your future. They can be washed by the blood of Jesus, and the cross of Jesus Christ becomes a new point and a new beginning and a turning point in your life, and now you have the rest of your life in front of you. Don't allow that spirit of rejection to stay with you. Don't allow that spirit of rejection to follow you into a new marriage, into a new relationship, and into your future, because here's what I know about God. God can take a minus and turn it into a plus. God can take a negative and turn it into a positive. God can take a curse and turn it into a blessing. God can take that which is meant for your evil and somehow, someway, by his love, by his power, and by his grace, he can turn that evil into your good and his glory if we'll simply allow him to come in. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And sometimes the pain that happens in life can turn into a prophetic promise that propels you forward in life to place you in the positions of life that God has for your future. I'm sorry it happened. It happened. You can't change it. But now don't let it be your tombstone. Let it be your building stone. Let it be your cornerstone in Jesus' name. Come on, in Jesus' name. And then... Peter ends here with one of the most controversial statements in all of the Bible. Look at verse 12. I want us to read this out loud together, and I want to keep that verse up on the screen for some time. Here we go, out loud together. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. My friend, you must be saved. If you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, you must be saved. You must, it, 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 you have to. Without Jesus, there's no future. Without Jesus, there's no hope. And today's the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not once you graduate from college, not when you're done with all your wild parties and, and all of your fun, whatever that we define as fun. You must be saved. And there's no other Savior than Jesus. Here, here, here's two things about Christianity. There's the exclusivity of Christianity and the inclusiveness of Christianity. What's the exclusivity of Christianity? Christianity is very exclusive in this way. In this, listen very carefully, in this way. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus is the only way to God. There's only one road, not many roads, there's only one road that leads to eternity, that leads to God, that leads to heaven, and that one road is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. There's no other way. There's no, all other religions are false religions. I know, in a, in a politically correct world and, and country, I may be arrested uh, for saying some things, and I just want to know, will you come visit me if I am? Okay, thank you. 
Uh, will you still come to church even if uh, the sermon is live from the local county jail? Amen. Thank you very much. Right? There's only one way. Oh, that's not very loving. No, it is loving. If you were dying of a disease and there was only one medicine that could heal you, it would be the most cruel thing to give you something that wasn't going to heal you and make you think that it was going to heal you and you die. We are a sick world and the only medicine that can heal a sick, dying world is the medicine sent down from heaven and it's Jesus. But here's what's inclusive. Jesus is for everyone and he loves everyone. Jesus loves every Muslim. He loves every Hindu. He loves every Buddhist. He, he loves every Jew. He loves every Gentile. He loves every heathen. He loves you. He loves me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten that whosoever will, that's the inclusiveness, whosoever will let him come. And, he, and all that believe will be saved. As the, command, as the offer in Scripture is whosoever will let him come and drink freely of the waters of life. Are you here today and are you thirsty? Jesus said, if you'll drink the water that I offer you, you'll never thirst again. Are you tired of drinking out of the water pot of this world? It doesn't satisfy. It just doesn't satisfy. In the end, you'll realize that if you haven't realized it yet. But God's calling you. He's calling you into a personal relationship with him. You say, how can I experience that? By confessing him to be Lord and Savior. The Bible says, if you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And if you'll say that prayer with your own mouth, mean it from your own heart with the rest of us, the greatest of all miracles will occur in your life right here, right now. But we're going to do something different. Starting today, we're going to change our services up a little bit. Normally, we would have ministry time and prayer towards the end of worship. We're going to move that to the end of our services. And here's why I'm going to give you the why behind it. A couple of weeks ago when we had our healing service. It was such a powerful response and we were able to give adequate time to everyone that needed to be prayed for because it was at the end of the service. Those that needed to go could go and those that needed to stay could stay and we could pray for them. Second of all, we, God's been dealing with us that one, one way to pastor you is not just through the preaching of the word but through worship. And so the Lord's been dealing with us that we need to have at least 15 minutes of uninterrupted worship. Instead of going eight minutes and then invite everybody to come forward and then, and then start again and then, and then cut. We want a flow of worship. Fifteen minutes, at least 18 minutes of uninterrupted worship. Which means you'll be able to get 15 to 18 minutes of uninterrupted worship if you show up on time. Or else you're only going to get ten or five or two or no worship. Not judging, just saying, okay. So here's what I want us to do. Uh, we're going to end by having a, a worship song and inviting people to come up for prayer. At the same time, we'll dismiss. But before we do that, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I want you to bow your heads. And I want you to pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family? Congratulations if you prayed that prayer to rededicate or commit your life to Christ. We want to hear about it. So there's a connection card in the pew back in front of you. Take that out, fill it out. Take it to Guest Connections. We have a Bible we want to give you. Or bring it up to the altar here. 
and uh, we'll give you further instruction about what has just taken place and you've taken the first step in your spiritual journey what's the next step well the next step is water baptism there's so many other wonderful blessings the baptism of the holy spirit and continued growth and discipleship that god has in store for your life and as a church we want to be a part of that